from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at the results from yesterday's state Supreme Court race. Then the executive director of the Southside Organizing Center shares what centers her work. When people ask me, what do the neighbors need, I don't answer for them. I ask the neighbors and tell them what the neighbors need, and that's something that we have to change in Milwaukee. Plus, we'll tell you about an exhibition that features the work of people who are incarcerated in Wisconsin. So something I did to kind of keep my mind occupied and keep my hands occupied, especially, you know, being in just a little cell. just needed something to do to not go crazy. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. The field for the Wisconsin Supreme Court election in April is now set. Milwaukee County Judge Jan Protosiewicz and former State Justice Daniel Kelly survived Tuesday's primary. And the fight has already begun. The state Supreme Court race wasn't the only big primary yesterday, which also decided the candidates in a major Milwaukee area state Senate contest. WUWM's Chuck Quirnbach joins us now to talk about these elections. Chuck, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you very much. So in the four-way state Supreme Court race, Judge Protosiewicz rolled up 46 percent of the vote, almost double that of her general election rival, Dan Kelly. Do we know why? Well, we don't know for sure, but based on a few voter interviews I did uh, when early voting started, there were some women that I talked to that said abortion rights were very important to them. Uh, certainly, Judge Protosiewicz emphasized abortion rights, her support for abortion rights in her television commercials and some of her appearances. Uh, she also emphasized her uh, longtime career as an assistant DA in Milwaukee County and also her roughly 10 years or so on the Milwaukee County bench. Uh, I would also add that the other liberal in the Supreme Court race, Everett Mitchell, uh, did not raise much money. He, he only got 7% of the vote. Uh, whereas on the conservative th- side of things, Daniel Kelly and Waukesha Judge Jennifer Doro roughly split that vote, uh, with Kelly only defeating Doro by about 23,000 people. Now, as we get into the general election, what are some of the key issues that voters are really focused on? Well, I expect more on abortion rights. Judge Protosiewicz, again, emphasizing her support for abortion rights. Kelly has been more cautious in his remarks, saying that if the lawsuit involving the 1849 law comes before the state Supreme Court, he would sort of rule on very narrow uh, constitutional grounds. But he is endorsed by anti-abortion rights groups, so I think they know how Kelly would rule. And uh, Protosiewicz last night reemphasized that either one of her conservative opponents uh, would likely rule in favor of the 1849 law. Of course, it won't be just abortion. I expect more input from business community uh, likely to back Kelly. Uh, There will be the gun rights groups as well. They've been actually organizing some conservative forums, the NRA uh, has. And so Kelly, you know, will also on this sort of thorny and sometimes hard to understand 
in, in the way old-fashioned uh, judicial arguments, he will try to make this race into a constitutional issue. Uh, he said last night at his party in Waukesha County that he feels that Janet Protasiewicz has tried to say that she's above the law. Let there be no mistake, for she is telling us in advance that she is planning to bring to the Supreme Court this ancient form of dishonesty. You know, Kelly also has a very big record of conservative rulings and links to Scott Walker. Uh, that may not help him uh, in the middle ground and left of center voters. Um, Protosewitz last night in Milwaukee also said that Kelly hasn't been a trial judge. Dan Kelly's never sentenced anybody. He's never sat in circuit court, right? You could argue that Supreme Court justices don't sentence people either, but they do rule on past sentencings, the legality and constitutionality of past sentencing. And uh, Protosewitz, again, is sort of emphasizing she's been a prosecutor, she's been a trial judge, while Kelly was a private practice attorney before Walker appointed him to the state court. So let's turn to the state Senate contest in the north and northwestern suburbs of Milwaukee. Tell us a bit about State Senate District 8 and and what we saw yesterday. Well, this is Alberta Darling's old district, longtime state senator, I think previously a state representative. It stretches from Whitefish Bay up to Mequon and then west, way west into the Richfield area. It was gerrymandered over the years to help uh, Senator Darling after she had a close election or two. Uh, But now it presumably still leans Republican, at least. Uh, The race to replace Darling is vital uh, in that the GOP would like to resume the supermajority it briefly had, well, really never technically had, but theoretically had after the fall elections where they were running the Senate 22 to 11. Now it's currently 21 to 11. If the Republicans keep that seat, they may be able to cause some political problems for Democratic Governor Tony Evers. So last night, Dan Knodel, a state representative from Germantown, was an easy winner. He defeated Menominee Falls State Representative Janelle Branchen and Thienesville Village President Van Mobley. So Knodel will face Democrat Jody Habish-Sinekin, who was unopposed yesterday in April. As you mentioned, Dan Knodel had quite a lot of competition and known figures who were in this race. How was he able to win so easily despite his competition? Well, our colleague Emily Files was nice enough to attend the three-way GOP forum last Friday night at a bowling alley in Menominee Falls. And I wrote up the story uh, with the audio Emily provided. And uh, in that forum, Knodel stressed his legislative experience, being around for 14 years, helping Senator Darling on a variety of things, helping Scott Walker on the Act 10 uh, legislation curtailing public bargaining rights, public employee bargaining rights. He also made a brief comment sort of stressing political realism that uh, Joe Biden is in office for at least about two more years and Governor Tony Evers uh, winning his chair for another four years and that there will be some need for compromise in Madison. Uh, There were ads in that race, both from Republicans and Democrats attacking Branchen, trying to either get her out of the race or boost her conservative credentials. But in the end, Canoda won 
Branchen had, of course, been a uh, elections committee chairperson carrying a lot of water for Donald Trump's false claims that he won the 2020 presidential election in Wisconsin. And Van Mobley, a very knowledgeable, very uh, politically experienced uh, village president and also a professor at Concordia University, but maybe just didn't have the name recognition or the insiders that voted in that race didn't think he could win against Habish Sinekin. So the Republicans have chosen Canodal as their nominee. It's interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of people have dug into Branchin and her involvement in election denial. But it, if I'm not wrong, Canodal was also involved uh, with the attempt to at least uh, stave off the confirmation of the election. Is that right? Oh, that's for sure. Uh, he was part of it, just not with the prominent effort that Branchen had. And again, making this comment last Friday of saying, well, you know, we, we have to realize who's in office and the things have to go on. Maybe as an olive branch to moderates uh, in the race, uh, moderate voters that may be taking a look and, and sick of the Republicans' efforts to overturn an election of more than two years ago. Mm. Now, as we look at this election, what are going to be the main issues that people will focus on? Well, Jody habish Sinekin, the Democrat, has already been running ads emphasizing her support for abortion rights, uh, also public safety. Uh, she may run to the center politically on a few things in that district. Again, it's leans Republicans, so she's going to have to capture uh, some moderate votes, you would think. Habish Sinekin will also get support from the environmental community from her days and years of representing environmental causes as a lawyer. Knodel has already been emphasizing his small business experience, his support for additional tax cuts. Uh, look for him maybe to attack Habish Sinekin on environmental issues. Again, the district leans Republican, but you know the Democrats have been showing signs of gaining uh, in that district. It's a sort of perfect example of some Republican-leaning districts not all that happy with their national candidate or some restrictions placed on a lot of voters like curtailing abortion rights uh, that affect the people in the middle class and a lot of well-to-do people. Some uh, Republicans really don't like that and will maybe uh, cross over and vote for a Democrat even if they don't like her views on taxes and spending. We'll see. Or maybe not vote at all. Now, turning back to the Supreme Court race here, there's already been an unprecedented amount of money put in this election, and not just from local sources. Why are so many people around the nation putting money into this race? Well, certainly the abortion rights issue is gaining a lot of attention. As I said, the business community will want to protect some gains it has made through the courts and legislature over the last uh, 15 years or so. And also on the redistricting, national Republicans would like to keep Wisconsin a strong uh, Republican area in the legislature, at least if they don't control the governor, but they control the legislature. So Conservative groups would like to maintain that, and there is a possibility that if Protosawitz gets in, uh, groups will file lawsuits challenging previous state Supreme Court ruling on redistricting and maybe throw the maps into question, maybe even throw Act 10 into question. So there's a lot of money uh, that could change hands, if you will, if, if Supreme Court decisions are different. So uh, some folks are investing, if you will, right now. And you see that uh, continuing into the general? 
Well, you know, the unexpected happens in these races. Uh, people write articles disclosing something or uh, candidates make announcements and so on. But unless uh, some polling starts to show it's a lost cause for Kelly uh, and that conservatives might be better off making their investments in other states or saving up for the 2024, I expect the dollars to continue. Uh, and certainly, uh, unions and other groups that traditionally support Democrats, liberal philanthropists have already put money in for Protosewitz. And again, we expect that to continue. I think I, like many of our listeners, uh, I get tired of all the attack ads on TV, the constant barrage of political advertising on your phone everywhere. What's your forecast? How much more ugliness might we see in this election? Well, I would first mention that Marquette professor and retired Supreme Court Justice uh, Janine Geske is bemoaning uh, again recently all this spending turning judicial races into legislative races. So there is that segment of the public turned off by all this and not just in, in the legal community. Of course, Joe, I would suggest more people avoid commercial television like I usually do, maybe tune to WWM, which uh, won't and can't accept political ads. You're still going to hear about the race through informed interviews on Lake Effect or our news programs. And uh, we'll likely, uh, you know, truth squad some of the ads anyway. So you'll hear about the ads, but just through a truth filter. So that's my pitch. I think that's a solid pitch. As someone who of course, works for this station and creates uh, some of these conversations. I will say, even as a listener, I really appreciate not hearing a, a constant barrage of insults. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, we should talk briefly about turnout that roughly 20 percent of registered voters voted yesterday, uh, you know, give or take a few percentage. That's way below people that vote in governor's races and presidential elections in Wisconsin. We're never going to get this race up to that level, but there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that, you know, do pay attention to voting and both sides are going to try to get those folks out and that what seems to be a pro to say what's a lead could get much closer. Yeah. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Uh, We will see what the future holds. Thank you. Chuck Kornbach is a WUWM news reporter. To find more of our political coverage, go to wuwm.com. The history of many Milwaukee neighborhoods has been erased or replaced over time. But a new project is working to educate people about the history of Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood and teach how the past has influenced the present. The Milwaukee Bronzeville Histories Project maps out where historic African-American figures lived and worked. It also pinpoints where longtime establishments existed, all through an app and website. Katonga Alexander is the lead researcher for the Milwaukee Bronzeville Histories Project. He joins Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. Why did you want to create this resource? Why was this important to you? Well, um, I have a background uh, looking at the generational crisis of joblessness in Milwaukee. Uh, and I'm a former school teacher, taught elementary, middle, and high school for 12 years. And after that, I went into human services uh, where I facilitated men and violence classes and uh, fatherhood classes. 
And from there, I moved into reentry work where I was the coordinator of the Welcome Home Project. Uh, I worked with individuals who were deemed at highest risk to for recidivism, which means that they will be reincarcerated at a higher rate than others. So we were working with a pretty sensitive uh, demographic. And a lot of times the generational crisis of joblessness research that I have been working on coincided with the state of a lot of individuals who I have been working with. And so it took us to a how did we get here moment. In, in history and what was there. And that led me to connect with Patricia Diggs, who is the publisher of the Bronzeville of Milwaukee Lifestyle, uh, a book uh, that her and Ivory Abina Black created, talking about the uh, history or the historical neighborhood uh, they call Bronzeville. It went by multiple names uh, and sometimes no names at all. Uh, and so she had this idea of putting the the history into a digital platform, which kind of coincided with me at the time being a, a PhD student. Uh, I was connected with her on this project to do Milwaukee Bronzeville. So the roots of it is kind of twofold. My history plus being at the right place at the right time, connecting with Patricia Diggs and her vision for a digital platform for Milwaukee's Black history. I think that it's important to know that the, the app was made possible through a grant from the Greater Milwaukee Foundation. They're supporting the next wave of the process as well for this upcoming year. Yeah, and I just also want to talk a little bit about the map that you and Patricia Diggs put together for Milwaukee Bronzeville History's website and app. And a number of the featured people and places are physically outside of what Google Maps defines as Bronzeville in Milwaukee. And you talked a little bit about how in Milwaukee's history, there were different iterations of names of this area. How did you both defined where Milwaukee's Bronzeville starts and ends for this historical resource. So using the word Bronzeville is is complicated and it also is controversial in certain circles. So the Bronzeville uh, neighborhood that's considered the Bronzeville neighborhood today has a different parameter than the Bronzeville of old. And, and the reason I say it's complicated is because when we say the Bronzeville of old, uh, that neighborhood of old didn't necessarily use the term Bronzeville. So we the Bronzeville is a, also a generic term that could be used to describe um, African-American neighborhood. And there are Bronzevilles throughout the country. Uh, now, some places have taken on that name officially. And so what we do is we're kind of using Bronzeville name in three ways. One way to describe the physical neighborhood of the old, which has a different parameter than the neighborhood of the new. The second way is we use the Bronzeville name generically, which just means the African-American neighborhood. And thirdly, we use Bronzeville as a term that periodically described the area uh, centered on Walnut Street. The new Bronzeville, you could argue, is either centered on 3rd or centered on North Avenue. The old Bronzeville's core was Walnut Street. Um, so that is how we differentiate the old with the new. With that being said, the way we use the term Bronzeville generically 
to mean African-American community, it also encompasses what we call Bronzeville today, which is an African-American community. So that is how we use Bronzeville kind of in a broadened sense. With all of that in mind, which is great historical context to know, the evolution of the neighborhood has changed over the course of decades of the establishment of Bronzeville. We've had highways built through entire African-American Black communities in Milwaukee. How did you decide what histories to dive into and to feature? What we wanted to tell with the website and app is we wanted to tell the stories of the places and the individuals who made the places. Uh, And by places, I mean the businesses, but also by place, I mean the actual neighborhood. Like the parameter of the neighborhood is something historically we could look at and, and, and see. Although if you look at it from a historical perspective, the parameter was continually growing, uh, even in it, you know, if you look at the community in 1920, you look at the community in 1946, we see the parameters even stretching, right? So it was a continuously adjusting even a physical parameter of on, on the neighborhood. So what we wanted to tell, though, is the stories of the people who made the neighborhood the neighborhood, regardless of where it was located. And so we go in, we look at the businesses, because there were a lot of businesses collectively in this area. Uh, There were people who were struggling and people who were thriving to get these businesses in in operation. So it wasn't a, from from a historical perspective, we could look at it and see like, oh, these people were giving businesses or something like that. These were people who made a way out of no way. And we wanted to tell the story of those individuals and also the individuals who supported them that made this this thing we call Bronzeville or this place that we recognize as a, a, a phenomenon. Who are some of the people that, that are featured on the website and the app and what are some places that are featured on the app and website? Every summer, the goal, and not, not even just every summer, but I should say every year, the goal is to continuously add people to the, the website. We feature what was then, and we also feature what is now. Uh, And the idea of it is to combat the argument that when the federal highway came through 43, which actually did disrupt the community that we're discussing, uh, and urban renewal policies were enacted, it uh, severely hindered the specific parameter uh, that we recognize historically as the Black community. But we argue through the Milwaukee Bronzeville histories that the African-American community was not destroyed by those policies. It was altered. So it still existed. And what we use to make that central argument is the fact that we still see the same energy, the same effort, the same ideologies today, and in many ways, direct descendants. To get to your question about who is on the website, we have people like Larry Hill, who had Larry's Lunchette uh, restaurant in what we recognize as Bronzeville or the Black community early on. And then we have today uh, descendants of, of Larry Hill still doing the same thing that he was doing. On, on the website, we have famous actors, uh, the first 
uh, African-American to win an Oscar. Uh, we have famous actors and, and sports players, advocates, individuals who migrated to the city and struggled and fought to make improvement to the area of Milwaukee. Um, and the list that we have on there now is going to grow every year. Milwaukee's Bronville neighborhood is getting national recognition. In 2022, the New York Times named Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood as a destination to visit. With all this national recognition, with the eyes on Milwaukee, how do you see visitors to the area or even other Milwaukeeans using this app when visiting the Bronzeville neighborhood or visiting this area of the city? So what we did for the 2022 version of the Milwaukee Bronzeville Histories is we created a walking tour guide where individuals could actually take the map and walk the destinations and see what is there now and also look in the, the, the map guide and see what was there before. Eventually, you will be able to use that map on your phone uh, where you can actually pull up from where you're at and it will bring up the images and history of what was there where you're standing. So the Milwaukee Brownsville History's idea for people coming is continuing to grow and, and be enhanced. And so what we, what we do is we have that map right now, and, and people can use that to see uh, the new and the old. And so we would like for people to really, really do about 50-50. You know, we, we want you to recognize what was here because what was here actually explains uh, what is there now. Uh, so when I say what was here, I mean what was here in the past. Um, and so it's important to recognize that the businesses that are in operation now, many of them are, are working off the efforts that were created or established in the old. Kitonga, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect to talk about uh, this wonderful project. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Kitonga Alexander is the lead researcher for Milwaukee's Bronzeville Histories Project and a Ph.D. candidate of history at UW-Milwaukee. He spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. A wall of monsters made out of milk cartons. A functioning Ferris wheel made out of paper. Those are just a few of the things you'll see at an exhibition featuring artists who've been incarcerated. We'll tell you all about it and explore some of the art in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll speak with the executive director of the Southside Organizing Center and one of Milwaukee Magazine's Unity Award recipients. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Milwaukee Magazine's Unity Awards are dedicated to extraordinary people and organizations, which are building a more fair, just, and equitable Milwaukee. Tammy Rivera, the executive director and lead organizer at the Southside Organizing Center, is one of this year's recipients. She's led the SOC since 2015, and the organization is dedicated to the growth and sustainability 
of Milwaukee's near Southside neighborhoods, a place where Rivera has lived all of her life. Rivera has a lot of experience in nonprofit work in the Milwaukee area and believes in a holistic approach in community building and social justice. To learn more about what drives her work, Rivera joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. So you're described as a veteran nonprofit executive, a community activist, and lifelong Milwaukeean. Can you share what or who helped to instill the value of community service in your life? I'd have to say um, two main aspects. One, my faith framework, right? So I really believe that God instilled in me the way he created me, my purpose in life, even though I think we all have a call to serve. But in particular, my key passions was really instilled in my creation by God. And also, I feel like he opened my eyes as even a young person to see things that I don't think people around me were seeing. So being able to see needs and injustices. And then it was a whole tribe of folks. People say it in in a cliche way, but it was very true. My mom was a single mom. She did an incredible job. Um, all that she could to to raise us, but the rest of the community like co-parented um, because she worked in the morning and went to college at night. And so it was a credit to a lot of people who saw in us something and invested in us and cared and loved us. And I remember, you know, my earliest experience about injustice that I that I can recall was going to the welfare office with my mom. She was a very beautiful woman on the outside, but she also was like a super optimistic, cheery, lovey-dovey person. And I remember her countenance changing when we got to the welfare office and I didn't know what that was about. And then we entered the office with the social worker. And I remember the lady being very unkind and my mom really changing and looking ashamed and afraid. And it was so heartbreaking. And I remember telling the lady, you can't talk to my mom like that. You know, my mom hushing me. That's my first memory. And I think that was very critical to my development and why I do the things that I do. As I shared, she never did take me back to the welfare office after that moment. And then, you know, as a teenager, seeing needs and jumping in, starting a community youth group and starting a dance team. And so I didn't enter community service in maybe some of the ways people think are traditional, like formal office in high school, but I certainly all of my life am grateful that God sort of pushed me to have courage even when I was afraid to, to meet needs. You've held a few different positions at various nonprofits up until your current role as the executive director of the Southside Organizing Center. What about running nonprofits do you think plays into your strengths best? One is I am very familiar with nonprofits because as a youth, there were several youth programs, um, especially for kids at, at risk, which were the category of me and my brothers. And so just having that interface of people inviting us to do after-school programming and Girl Scouts and photography class, you know, getting summer youth jobs, it was very much a part of my life uh, to be around nonprofits. So it was a natural progression for me from being a youth worker to going into nonprofits. And then again, I think it was a divine prick to my heart um, when I was working for nonprofits as an adult. And then the professionalization of nonprofits. So this was the 1980s, you know, wasn't where it is now. And I remember thinking, 
wow, like I need to learn how to do this really well to help our people. Like I need to learn all aspects of nonprofits. And that's what I set out to do from the moment somebody like took a proposal and plopped it on my desk and said, hey, uh, we got funded. We got a grant to do gang intervention. And I think you'd be great to do that. And I didn't even know what a grant was until I, you know, mastered different areas, program evaluation, fundraising, et cetera. And so that's what I set out to do. And then another piece that is, I'm so grateful to God, which I think was unusual as well, is I was born and raised on the South side. It was primarily a Polish community and then a Latino ex community. And I remember thinking we're all God's children and I want to love and serve all of them and being deliberate about all right, now I'm going to not just serve in the Latino community, although this will be a lifelong call in my life. I want to go work in the Black community. And I did. I went to the Hunger Task Force and then the Community of Disabilities. And I went to United Cerebral Palsy. And then I wanted to do gender program. I went to Girl Scouts. So I really say, again, no credit. God put that in my heart to love and serve all people. And, and I believe in order to do that, to love them, you have to be immersed to them respectfully and with a great sensitivity and curiosity and humbleness. And that's what I set out to do. All this, I feel, is kind of touching upon your unique perspective of what social justice is. Can you share a little more about that? Yeah, I talk about this all the time um, because it's the vocation I happen to be doing at this point in my life, but also there's gaps. And so my perspective on social justice is that people tend to think that it means it's just if everybody has like an equally an opportunity to do something or gain a resource. But it's not the possibility that some people have. It's like the certainty that we should be able to work, have a home, have food, and that we have a certainty of equitable access and equitable access to sufficient opportunities and resources, right? And so that's where I think people get it wrong. It's like, oh, you you could do, you know, oh, there are jobs, but are there jobs for everybody? And are they, you know, family sustaining jobs? And can you keep it if, you know, do you have enough days to attend to sick your kids if they're sick? And then the other aspect that I bring up, which people tend not to want to talk about or ignore is also social justice is about making sure that these opportunities and resources, they're absent, you know, of privilege and oppression, and they're corrective of historical privilege and, and oppression. If someone got a mile, you know, advantage in something and someone starts a mile back, how do you close that gap? That's what social justice, you know, means to me. People should all be able to thrive and not suffer. You've been with the Southside Organizing Center since 2015. And as you've mentioned before, you've lived in the same community you serve all your life. So with both of these perspectives, what to you are the community's most pressing needs you're working to address right now? Well, right now um, at SOC, we're doing mass surveying of our fellow neighbors uh, to find out post-pandemic, what their needs and dreams are, because as you well know, all of us were faced with critical issues, danger, and priorities. Some of us, many of us lost 
options, other of us gained other options. And so we cannot assume that life is the same. And so when people ask me, what do the neighbors need? I don't answer for them. I ask the neighbors and tell them what the neighbors need. And that's something that we have to change in Milwaukee. We have people of privilege, even I'm a person of privilege in some arenas, who are trying to solve problems without having a lived experience of that problem. Therefore, they're applying their the way they grew up, the way they solve problems and out of a position of privilege, whether that's by race or social class or education, to an issue they really don't know all the nuances to. Um, and so uh, we're starting with these surveys and then we'll bring them together in groups to kind of confirm. And then we, the other piece we do is have them identify problems and then give solutions to. So we'll be able to share what that is in the spring. Of course, there's some very critical presenting problems, the opiate crisis, the affordable housing crisis, the economic status of what's available, what people need to live and what's available, um, transportation, et cetera. As you mentioned, I think that simple direct concept like the survey you're conducting are often not prioritized in most organizing efforts. Yeah. Well, people don't understand, I think, that you're not going to solve something if the people that are most impacted are not centered, their voices, and if they're not leading. And I share this example from a former colleague of mine at the Hunger Task Force, Mike Rosen, who's the president of the union at MATC and now started a foundation. And he said, for example, um, there was a woman who became homeless living in her car that broke down, had to pull out of school. And the traditional resources to help her would be what? Tuition, books. That's not going to help her situation. And I always give that example now and I ask people, what would you do for her? And most of them, what do you think she asked for? And most of them say, oh, you know, housing and food, et cetera. And what she needed was money to fix her car so she could return to work, so she could keep an apartment, so she can go to school. And so if you don't center people and their needs, you're going to be offering her books and tuition. And that's not going to get her from what she knows she needs even though all those other things are needed. And that's what's missing in Milwaukee. We have people, like I said, in the mix, from their point of view and privilege, trying to solve problems without those people with lived experience and all the nuances. Plus they have other self-interest. Like it's in your self-interest if you have a job that is kept because somebody else is not doing well. So now you're mixing people's self-interest. And so we really have to change how we do business in Milwaukee, how we do community work, and how we solve problems. And they are, um, there, there's great hope in that, but we have to really shift that paradigm. Whether people are in roles in nonprofits like yourself or just living day-to-day -day life, how do you encourage people to have authentic connections and relationships with their neighbors? Well, the neighbors with the neighbors do a great job. <laughs> it's the professionals in the community who don't live here, who have transactional relationships, meaning, you know, come to our meeting, come to our events, do this work that we got a grant for, et cetera, or we need information for our plan, but they don't think about a real relationship is, what does that person need and is dreaming about and concerned about? And then what do I bring to the table 
that could really support that? And what do I bring to the table that could be any of those specific things? And I always explain, like, every time we get a whatever grant, we go out to do that. Like, we talk to a person about housing, and we build a good, you know how I know we build good enough relationships? Because then they come back and was like, hey, I got this letter from my kid's school, and I need some help with it. Hey, this bill problem, it's never just a singular transaction. And that's what's happening oftentimes in the community instead of going to people. So we have to change. We have to compete with basic needs, help people meet them so they can be free. Now, don't get me wrong. Every movement has been won by people who are the most suffering. So they can be outraged and they can be inspired to do that. But is it just for us as professionals to be in a space being paid and not compensating people or competing for their basic needs? Well, Tammy, I want to thank you so much for your time today and for your work and congratulations for your Unity Award. It's well-deserved. Thank you for having me on and um, giving us an opportunity to connect with folks and all my best to you. Tammy Rivera is the executive director and lead organizer of the Southside Organizing Center. She's also one of the recipients of Milwaukee Magazine's 2023 Unity Awards. For more information on the Southside Organizing Center, head to wuwm.com. And we want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation that you'd like to hear on the show, give our Community Connection Line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. Coming up next, we'll tell you about an exhibition that features the work of people who are incarcerated in Wisconsin. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. An exhibition at the Milwaukee Institute for Art and Design, also known as MIAD, features artwork made by people who are incarcerated in Wisconsin. The show is called Art Against the Odds and was organized and curated by the Portrait Society Gallery of Contemporary Art. It includes the works of 65 artists from 20 of Wisconsin's prisons. WUWM race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell toured the space with Deborah Bremer, the gallery director of the Portrait Society Gallery of Contemporary Art. On the lower level of my ad, I met Deborah Bremer in the Frederick Layton Gallery, where the exhibition Art Against the Odds is featured. Bremer is the gallery director of the Portrait Society Gallery of Contemporary Art, which organized this exhibition. Art Against the Odds was over two years in the making. To get participants, the groundwork involves sending letters to the prisons requesting the work of incarcerated individuals. It involves some phone calls, word of mouth, and mention in the Community Newsletter, a popular publication in Wisconsin prisons. Bremer says, to her knowledge, a show of this scale has never been done in Wisconsin. 
Almost all of the artists did not have any art experience prior to their incarceration. Art is such a great vehicle to open conversations. It's not polarized, it's not loaded. People come in and you don't walk in right away with all these thoughts about how you feel about the criminal justice system or the prison system. You walk in and you, you look at the work and you feel what the work is communicating and then from there conversations seem to evolve. The show is divided into six themes and features about 250 pieces of artwork that include portraits, sculpture, knitting, and beadwork. And there are a couple of room-sized installations too. Brimmer gave me a tour of the gallery. Our first stop was the section Alone, Solitary Confinement. Brimmer says artists completed most of the work while they were in solitary confinement. Like Nate Lindell, who spent 15 years in solitary. He drew detailed images of the layout of the cell with notes of what it was like. These beautiful, very tender drawings that, you know, there's limited materials. You get a rubber pencil and a couple of sheets of paper every few days. So you can almost get a sense of how precious the pencil and the piece of paper are to him as he's recording his situation. A few steps ahead of us was a wall covered in satellite images of the 20 Wisconsin prisons where the artists live. Then we came to one of the room-sized installations, a solitary confinement cell, built from the artist Dominic Merrick's drawings. He detailed everything from where the light switches and emergency buttons were to the measurements of everything in the cell. And on this drawing, he writes that he was in solitary confinement for seven out of eight months in 2001 to 2002. I received one book a week, which I would finish in one or two days, leaving the other six days of listening to the radio and to write. One of the spaces that really stuck out to me was the section called Scarcity of Materials. Because most prison artists don't have broad access to materials, they have to be very careful <laughs> finding them, reserving them, and maybe being innovative in figuring out how to make art out of unconventional materials. The section included knitted hats, purses, and scarves, picture frames made out of colored paper and potato chip bags. And there's a fully operative five-foot-tall Ferris wheel made entirely out of paper by Joseph Hickerson. So this Ferris wheel is made out of 902 sheets of paper, paper that is rolled, sometimes multiple pieces of paper rolled together for strength. And he figured out how to put in a weight and a crank uh, made out of paper. The weight is actually a shampoo bottle filled with sand, and it runs for 10 minutes if you crank it all the way up. Here's what cranking the Ferris wheel sounds like. One of the artists who also had a few pieces in the scarcity of material section was there as I toured with Bremer. His name is Joshua Gressel. We stood in front of his piece called Milk Monsters. The monsters, which covered an entire wall, are made of torn up milk cartons from each place he's been incarcerated. I started probably over 10 years ago when I was in Milwaukee County Jail. And that's these uh, Dean milk cartons right here. And one day I was just drinking my milk and I saw a little face in the milk carton. And I started ripping it apart and made this little creature and then from then that's every time I had a milk carton I just started making different ones and um, having they all had their own little personalities and um, it was something 
I did to kind of keep my mind occupied and keep my hands occupied, um, especially, you know, being in just a little cell and um, not having much movement. Um, I just needed something to do to not go crazy. On the wall of Milk Monsters, there are a couple of dogs. Gressel says one is in the likeness of an old family dog. Another looked to me like a wizard with a pointed hat, a beard, and a walking stick. And I spotted a butterfly with apple stems as the antennas. Gressel says there are even more milk monsters than the ones in this exhibition. There's also a framed work of his. He says a lot of people miss it because it's small, but it's a torn sugar packet with a drawing of his interpretation of Godzilla breathing fire and there are people running. Gressel says art helped him through some really tough times. There's another cell-sized installation in the correspondence and connection space. Painting has changed my life and literally saved my life. I stepped behind black curtains into a small room with letters plastered around the walls, and there's audio playing of the letters being read. Long since deceased, snatched me back from the throes of suicide. One thing that we realized in doing this project was that letter writing, correspondence is so crucial to the mental health of anyone who's incarcerated. It is the connection to the outside world and it means everything. I would love to see people staring at my art. The audio is of actors from the nonprofit organization, The Feast of Crispian. The group brings professional actors and veterans together to strengthen the emotional resources they need to overcome trauma and reintegration issues. At the end of the tour, there's a table and chairs where visitors can sit and write letters to the artists. Bremer says more than 200 have already been written. Bremer added that 95% of the incarcerated artists featured in this show will be released. I think what this show speaks to very forcefully, whoever you are, is that we want to make sure that they're released as individuals who have some confidence, some self-esteem, and who believe that there might be a place for them in the world and a way for them to give something to the world. Brimmer says a number of the artists say art saved their lives. Art Against the Odds runs at Myad through March 11th. Taryn Powell, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. That was WUWM race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell. You can see pictures of the Art Against the Odds exhibition at wuwm.com. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. We're approaching the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll speak with a Ukrainian student who is studying in Wisconsin about how the war has impacted their life. Plus, we'll learn about maple syrup season and where you can go to tap and taste some Wisconsin maple syrup in our Wandering Wisconsin series. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.